And I sat in the pits and thought of all the people that I knew who had been injured or could not ride. I thought, I can't sit here. I have to get back on the bike. Welcome to Champions Mojo, a podcast to bring out your inner champion. Your hosts are sisters-in-law, Kelly Pallas and Maria Parker. Kelly is a former Division I head swim coach, Olympic trials qualifier, and holds national and world records in master swimming. Maria holds world records in endurance cycling and won the world's toughest bike race, Race Across America. Both are certified health and life coaches. Our goal is to inspire you through conversations with champions. And now your host, Kelly Pallas. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Champions Mojo podcast. And I can't wait to welcome my co-host, Maria Parker. Hey, Maria. Hi, Kelly. How are you today? Just doing great. And Maria, as you know, we are in for a real treat today as our guest is a world record holding endurance cyclist. He was never a competitive swimmer, though recently he has added swimming to his workouts. I can't wait for our listeners to hear his amazing story about a full recovery from a broken neck. He has also got quite a resume, which includes having been a visiting lecturer at Oxford. He's an author of multiple books, including two books of poetry and a renowned expert on doing business in the digital age. Our guest, Jeffrey Ritter, has worked at the UN and has testified before Congress. But Maria, before we bring in your fellow endurance cycling champion, can you tell us a little bit more about Jeff? Sure, Kelly. I'm so delighted that my friend, Jeffrey Ritter, is coming on the show today. He's the current overall world endurance recumbent cycling champion. At the 2019 Borrego Springs 12-Hour World Time Trial Cycling Championships, Jeffrey completed 181 miles in 12 hours. Jeffrey has overcome enormous odds to live out his dream of becoming a champion cyclist. He's currently living what he calls Life 2.0, but we'll let him tell us more about that. Jeffrey, so glad to have you on Champions Mojo. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to spending some time with both of you. Yes, welcome, Jeffrey. So, Jeffrey, yeah, tell us about uh, what does Life 2.0 mean? What's the story behind that? Well, back in the early part of this decade, 2011, 2013, uh, I made two trips to the French Alps to fulfill lifetime dreams, you know, to ride in the French Alps, to put your wheels on the same roads where those names of legends have been painted, and to conquer the mountains there. And coming back home after the second trip, where I had actually ridden the full stage of the tour solo, I thought, well, what's left? I was winning podiums in state and regional time trial champions for my age group. But what could I do to really up my game? I decided, inspired by those people that have raced the race across America, that I would try to qualify. After all, I was now 60 years old. Um, And so we focused on a race qualifier that was out in Ohio, uh, where I grew up, and it was really cool to contemplate racing on the same roads that I had learned how to love cycling. We got out there to do a training run, get familiar with the road, and 18 miles out, well, life point 1.0 came to an end. We don't really know what happened, but uh, I was riding solo. 
Uh, my wife and so experienced SAG supporting me behind me in a car that she'd stopped to get the day's waters. And when I came to, I had somehow fallen off a bridge uh, nearly 23 feet. Um, we think that probably I just hit a gap between the tarmac and the concrete of the bridge. It was out in the country, so there was a low guardrail, and somehow I must have lost control and gone over the guardrail. Looking up, it was like, what is this rusty underside of a bridge? I, I was riding my bicycle. Well, as it turned out, that was the beginning of Life 2.0. I survived, but my sternum had been broken in half on the boulder. A couple ribs were broken, but the real injury was that my head had whiplashed and broken over half the length of my neck. Uh, C5, C6, C7, T1, T2, all of them required attention over the ensuing days of surgery. Well, as I sat there on the gurney the next morning, having not almost made it through the night, the doctor asked before the first surgery, do I have any questions? And I looked up at him and I said, yeah, will I be able to fly to the University of Oxford to teach for the first time? And he had that kind of a look that we would use an acronym of WTF. And <laughs> <laughs> he looked at my wife and her eyebrows go up. And he said, when would you be going? Because he hadn't even done the surgery yet. And I said, well, eight weeks from today. I squeezed my hand and said, let's make that your, your goal. And wow. indeed, eight weeks later, neck brace still on, suitcase in one arm, laptop in the other. I insisted that I could get on the airplane, fly to London and teach. Wow. Wow. Can you give us the, like a little tighter timeline? What year was this? What month was it? And what, like when you actually saw the underside of the rusty bridge, did you have feeling in your limbs were you uh in pain can you give us a little <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i'd like to hear that too how did you get help because you were invisible i'll, I'll try to do that <laughs> august 1 2014 approximately 9 16 a.m according to my garmin which actually recorded both my elevation over the guardrail and also <laughs> the descent afterwards <laughs> Uh, to be graphic, I, uh, we calculated that I hit the boulder with my sturm at a, at a physical speed of 26 miles per hour. Oh, wow. Goodness. And when I came to, I heard vehicles on the bridge and realized they couldn't see me. How would I get help before I died? I could tell I was broken. The, the pain was intense, particularly on the left side. And I felt my cell phone in my back pocket had twisted. It was on my exposed right hip. And I said, well, okay, clearly something's broken. I could puncture a lung. I could sever an artery, but I have to get my hand down my side, pull the cell phone out and try to call my wife. Otherwise she won't find me. She could drive right past me. She may have already done so. And very slowly I pulled the cell phone back up, looked at it and realized I'd lost my glasses. So, oh, oh my goodness. so I, you know, squinted, extended, and eventually found a way to redial. And that was one of the things that was so fascinating was here's this phone 20 feet under a bridge in Ohio connecting to a network that connected back to our home in Virginia and then reconnected back to my wife, who was in fact just four miles away in the car. And I said, I'm down. It's bad. I'm under a bridge. She had to find the bridge. Yeah. Um, so as it turned out, uh, you know, 
they put me on a gurney, uh, put me on a backboard, put me on a neck brace and took me up to the, uh, uh, the road. The helicopter came in, took me to the hospital. And, you know, of course, the first thing they do is they, in trauma, is they cut all your clothes off. So here I am, an agile 60-year-old with a neck brace on in front of 25 doctors and nurses running around my body. And the doc next to me has the helmet that I had. And he says to the recording, he says, helmet inspection has occurred. There's no evidence of visible impact on the helmet. But wow, this is a nice helmet. It's the same one I have. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, uh, well, so you're, you're pretty with it because you remember these details. Oh yeah. And, and I, and I said, Oh, do you ride, you know, just for fun or do you race like I do? And he said, Oh, I just ride for fun. What about you? And I said, well, I was training to race across America. And at that point there was this whoosh in the room <laughs> and they realized they didn't have a weekend cyclist. They had a hard ass athlete. Mm -hmm. And I think it changed the quality of the care that I received from that moment on. Hmm. Tell us about that. What do you think being a hard ass athlete did for you in this circumstances? Oh, it perhaps made me realize that I was a hard ass athlete. Mm. <laughs> uh, two days after the surgery, the PT came in to see if I could take a couple steps up and down in, in their exercise room. And I did. Um, the nurse said it was okay if I wanted to get out of bed, use the toilet, sit down in the chair. And I said, okay, so I got up the steps and then now I'm back in the room and I get out of bed on my own and come back and I'm going to sit in the chair for the first time. And I sat down and I said, Hey, that's just like a squat. You know, I don't have to just sit here and I'm standing up and down doing squats into the chair <laughs> oh and the nurse walks by and says, what the heck are you doing? And I said, I'm doing squats. I'm in recovery. And at that moment, <laughs> the nurse who had also held my hand through the night, the first night said, either you get back in the bed or I'm taking your, your, your gown off because you're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> Oh my so goodness. we and I mean I just I've seen uh, Jeffrey's X-ray or part of it anyway, and you know now at this point after the surgery you have a bunch of metal in your neck. But it was titanium and carbon fiber, so I was lighter. It's <laughs> so important to a cyclist. You know I'm mesmerized by this. How <laughs> do you how do you break your neck in all those places and still have mobility? I just want people to have that info. Um. The, uh, there were two surgeries, one from the front where a U-bolt was attached to the vertebrae known as T1 and T2 in the front, essentially providing a platform for the rest of the work that was then done the next day by going in through the back. Two titanium rods are screwed into C5, C6, and C7. The uh, disc between C5 and C6 was packed with cadaver bone so that it would all fuse. And mm -hmm. C6 and C7 disc was pulled and replaced with cadaver bone to fuse. So C5, 6, and 7 are essentially one vertebrae held together with titanium. And the second answer is a lot of hard work. Um, I mean, it's a miracle that I had mobility at all. Uh, the doctor said another eighth of an inch, and I would have been, a, in terms of the disc, and it would have severed the spinal cord enough that I would have been a quadruplete. Had it gone to a quarter inch, I just simply would have been dead. Mm. And so it's by those measures, but 
my left side was extremely weak and extremely uncomfortable. And yeah, all I can say is it just took nearly a year of physical therapy, uh, weekly visits to my PT chiropractor to build and regain the uh, space around the nerves that allowed my scapula and my left arm to regain uh, most of their functionality. Now, Jeffrey, I know that you had all intentions to get back on a traditional bike to, to continue your training. Sure. Well, just, um, you know, I never, I never questioned that I was going to be riding again. Right. So, so tell me what, what happened with that? Well, the doctor had a great metaphor. Uh, he said after the surgery, he said, look, dude, Peyton Manning was told with his neck surgery, he couldn't play for a year. So you stay off a bicycle for a full year. I said, yes, sir. And a week later, I wrote, you mean on the road, correct? <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and mm -hmm. this was when the cycling application called Zwift had just come out. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of the early users because I could set the computer screen on the floor because I mm -hmm. couldn't look up. The, my range of motion is still prescribed by the titanium rods, but I could look down. And I spent that year training on the bike, on the trainer, indoors, looking at the computer screen, waiting for the first anniversary. And good friends joined me, big day of celebration. And within two miles, I realized I could never ride a regular bike because I can't look up, which is also a good way of making sure I don't flirt with anyone that's taller than I am. <laughs> now, I you told a story once that I have just stuck in my mind about about realizing, I think you were eating ice cream and with your wife in Durham and you were, it was a beautiful day and you were, and I don't know when this falls in the timeline, but you were watching cyclists go by. Can you tell that story? <laughs> well, to, to go back to your very first question. So weeks after all this, I'd come back from Oxford and my wife had just retired from her federal career. And so we were just talking, now what? She has no job. I have a broken neck. And she just looked at me and said, well, we're starting life 2.0. Nice. And that's where it came from. And as, as Maria knows, that's tattooed on my arm, uh, on my forearm where I see it every moment of my waking days. So to answer your question, we then moved down here to where we now live in Durham, North Carolina, and unable to ride a bike. <laughs> she was trying to, I mean, by now I'm really depressed and said, let's, you know, we've moved to a new home. I can't ride a bike. She took me to an ice cream store. We're looking out over the landscape and there's this ribbon of road in front of us and two mm -hmm. cyclists are going down. <laughs> and as you can tell, <laughs> it's very emotional. A year later, having discovered recumbent bikes, I rode that same road, <laughs> shouting, <laughs> cheering, <laughs> screaming with joy. Mm. I was riding again. Yeah. So beautiful. It it is. Is. Yeah. I, I mean, so for those listening, like, you know, a traditional bike, you know, was formerly called a diamond frame and even that can hurt your neck. I, I, I get a sore neck on a diamond frame. So the, the, the transfer to a recumbent for you was just the joy and the glory of having this 
can you describe your positioning and what it felt like and, and how it's kind of put the fun, fun back into biking for you? Well, um, you know, I saw this video of somebody on YouTube going up the same mountain I had ridden in France, the tallest one, uh, called the Galibier, which anyone knows from Tour de France. And he was on a recumbent. And I thought, whoa. So recumbents aren't just for old people. These may actually be serious bikes. And then I read about these people that raced on recumbents. And they raced long. And as we know, Maria Parker had ridden the race across America and won on a recumbent. I thought, holy cow. And she's just two hours away from me. So I reached out to the Parkers and they were gracious enough based on the story <laughs> to lend me one of their bike frames, not the racing ones, but a more upright style. It was known as the soft rider and said, see if you can ride this. I brought it home and it took me four weeks to have the courage and find the balance to ride down my driveway. But once I crossed onto the street, <laughs> And found my balance. I said, "We're going to do this." Mm. And so the this the bike that I now race on has a thirty degree seat, meaning that from the ground moving up, it's at a thirty degree angle. Not the most aggressive, flat, almost flat. But because I can't have the range of motion in my neck to say touch my chin to my chest, I have to have a higher seat angle, which means I just have to figure out how to make myself faster even though I have more aerodynamic resistance than say someone riding the fully speedy uh, recumbents. But once you find your balance, it's uh, very easy to go and to then learn how to go fast. What model, what model are you riding, Jeffrey? Uh, it's now the Silvio 3.0, which is the 30 degree seat. Oh, yeah. So, so again, I want to back up a little bit in case anybody doesn't understand a recumbent bike is where you pedal out in front of you and you sit rather than sitting on a saddle, you sit more like a chair and they've been around for a long time since the, since the early part of the uh, 20th century, but uh, they're gaining in popularity now. And, and people know that I actually own and run a company that sells this, this uh, product called cruise bike. And when Jeffrey came to our, to our house, in North Carolina and told us his story, we were, you know, of course, very moved and hoped that we could help him, you know, with our bike. And so we just said, hey, take this, take it for as long as you need it, take your time. You know, we didn't want him to fall off and re-break -re his neck. <laughs> so, um, but then uh, Jeffrey sent me a little video kind of giving me him, me more of his background. Um, and of course, then I was really delighted when he got got back to us and said yeah i like this bike this is going to work for me but then since then jeffrey's been doing some amazing things on his cruise bike silvio tell us about that well uh i figured if i fell off the bike training for going long hours and distances i should figure out how to do that on on the recumbent and about 18 months after i got the bike i entered my first 12-hour race and it was about 104 degrees. I remember that. I was racing too. It was horrible. Yeah, it, it was very hot. But uh, I got to the point toward the end of the day that I said, okay, that's, that's enough. And I sat in the pits and thought of all the people that I knew who had been injured 
or could not write. I thought, I can't sit here. I have to get back on the bike. Yeah. And so I got back and did another 27 miles before the end of the 12 hour period. And that was my first race. And I was completely hooked. Endurance racing is a team sport. It may seem like there's only one person on the bicycle, but behind that person is uh, a coach uh, and usually uh, a crew of one or more people that are responsible for taking care of everything except pedaling the pedals. And that's true regardless of what kind of bicycle you're on. In my case, it was my wife who went from just driving a car behind me to make sure I had my water bottles to learning how to be an entire crew for an endurance cyclist. And so she's been a big part of that. And that was in 2017. And at that point, uh, we continued to enter these 12-hour races. I engaged a coach, got stronger, lost weight, and have continued to now be competitive. Uh, so that last year, not only losing, uh, winning the world championship, but I also won the 12-hour U.S. national championship on the recumbent. So that was really nice. Gosh, what a great comeback story. It's just so, so inspiring. What advice would you give to someone who might feel discouraged or even depressed when they have an enormous setback like your accident? Since my own recovery, I've reached out to other cyclists who have suffered neck injuries. And I've said to them, everybody can talk to you about what it takes to come back, but only someone who truly has been there deserves to be listened to. Because, you know, oh, you can do this and it's the new normal and it'll take time to recover. But you need someone to say, dude, you only have one fracture to C1. I have five, six, seven, T1, T2, and I came back to winning championships. Get your butt going. <laughs> and, and so I think that the, the trick uh, after a serious injury is twofold. No one else can find the will to fight except the person that's been injured. You can be showered with love, cradled with affection, carried through the highest quality physical therapy that someone can imagine. But unless you want it, unless you intend to defeat the injury, you'll never get to where you want to be. The tattoo that I mentioned that's on my arm of Life 2.0 shows uh, uh, called Gaulibier, uh, which as I mentioned is one that I've crossed on my own bicycle. And what I do it, I show that tattoo to folks. I said, look, this represents the mountains of life I have conquered, but it also represents the mountains I will conquer. And you need to see them and decide that you will beat those mountains. Whether it's learning how to ride a bike on your back, whether it's finding out how to go in the water when you can't turn your neck, whatever it is, learning that you're going to race on a recumbent rather than a regular bike because that's the only thing you can do. You have to find that will to fight and to, to just simply say, no matter what the discomfort or the pain, whatever, what the obstacles other people see, you don't see them. You just are going to work through them and be on and, and get to the top of those mountains. It sounds like that that will to fight is really natural for you. And, and I, one of the things that we, we love to 
do for our champions is see things that they may just do naturally and they don't even realize it. Um, I, I feel like one of the things that you used here that you're not specifically drilling down on is goal setting and visualizing and having that 2.0 and the mountains and the goal of getting back on the bike, the goal of going to lecture at Oxford. Can you talk a little bit about that, about what you were thinking about? Good question. During the last year, when we're all going through the pandemic, a lot of athletes, including myself, had huge setbacks because our goals have been wiped away. Uh, whether it was this race or qualifying for the Olympics or racing for this championship, suddenly they're empty. There's just a null, a void there. And what you have to do is recalibrate what that goal is going to be. Um, it has to be a shorter term goal, but you still then have to pursue the process. Uh, so for example, I come back from the other end of North Carolina with this bicycle on the back of my car that I'd never seen. And oh yeah, I've, you know, ride this down the driveway. Well, it took me four weeks to figure out how to drive, you know, ride that bicycle 200 feet. And yet that became the goal. Then it was the goal of going down to the cul-de-sac on our street and back 200 yards. Um, I remember posting on Facebook weeks after the accident and before I went to Oxford uh, to my friends that I had just walked to the end of the corner of where our house was. And it was 500 meters and back. It was a full kilometer. And so the small steps become the goals. And in this time of uncertainty about other races, what's so critical is to reset those goals to those that you can reasonably achieve and or irrationally achieve, but that are there. And so, uh, you know, for the, the injured athlete who's coming back, you have to think in those terms. And, you know, the, I told you about the PT having me walk a couple of steps. The next day she came in and said, you want to try some, some real steps? And I said, of course. And she took me to the end of the hall. My wife was with us and they wanted to make sure that I could actually, I wouldn't fall, right? And so they're very carefully around me. And I'd now gone, I, I then did three steps on the first day. And the next day I went up three flights of steps and I said, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> no, she laughed and said, I, I think you're done now. <laughs> you're discharged from PT. So I think you have to reshape those goals. And even if it's gaining five seconds or two seconds in the pool or 10 watts on the bicycle or reducing your, your, uh, your weight or whatever your objective is, thinking of them in, in, a, in reachable goals rather than just being overwhelmed by the, the void that's out there in, in the big picture. That's, that's terrific advice. Uh, Jeffrey, I know, as we said in the introduction, you've been incredibly successful in your professional life as well. How do you think the characteristics that allowed you to come through this, you know, really tough injury and then go on to become a champion again, you know, how do you think those overflow to your professional life or vice versa? You know, is this just who you are or are these goal setting and process oriented 
mindset? Or is that just something that you've developed over time? Or is it something that's just, you know, part of Jeffrey Ritter? <laughs> Despite what the record of things I've done suggests, uh, it was not an easy journey uh, professionally. In fact, there were more than a few times when I had the professional equivalent of being knocked off the bicycle. I, I joke with people, I got fired a lot uh, because I kept pushing the envelope on how to change things and ultimately had the chance to do that at the United Nations. And the one thing that I think the injury and the recovery and the cycling over the last 10 years has helped me focus on is that what I didn't know I had until this all occurred was really an indomitable commitment to not defeat myself. Mm -hmm. Don't let your despair, don't let your depression, don't let your injuries, uh, the fact that you just got fired, get in the way of your own confidence that you will be the very best that you can be. For me, I found usually, except on the bike, that was in service of others. But the bicycle gave me this one place where I could indulge in a little self-focus to be the very best that I could. And as you've already said, and it's, it's one of the more gratifying aspects of this whole journey, is that it's in fact been serving others because the story and the, the journey that I've had has inspired other people. Um, that's why I've reached out to other crash victims uh, on bicycles because they want to know they can survive. They want to know that they can once again be strong. And so my, you know, when I get back on that bike and, and I'm racing, I'm thinking of making sure that the story is, stays good and strong, that I don't defeat myself because they need to hear that story too. Mm, that's great. That's a really, that's really beautiful, Jeffrey. I so appreciate that kind of intention. And I, you know, I, I, and as an endurance cyclist as well, you know, there's different things that you think about as you're going through. And if you're thinking of others, it's so much easier to keep on going. And I, I appreciate that you use that technique as well. But I, I think it's interesting to me that one thing that has to happen when you have a setback, when you get fired, when you have an injury is sometimes your dream has to change. Agreed. And so, yeah, tell me about how that has borne out in your life. Well, uh, the cycling is a great example. I mean, the unexpected, take a step back. When I first went to the French Alps, I wrote a blog about a lifetime dream coming true. Um, I started focusing on cycling as a high school kid and looking at the small print at the bottom of the sports section on the Sunday page that had these French names and French towns. I thought, wow, that's really cool stuff. And then you could actually see same day coverage on wide world of sports and then see the live coverage as the new century began. And it was always calling me to, to go there. And that dream did ultimately come true in 2011 when I got to take my bike to France and race on those hills and those mountains, conquer those dreams. Yesterday, a friend of mine posted on Facebook, a young fellow, very wise in his age, not an athlete, but a great inspiration uh, about remaining to stay focused on the dreams that you have. And I wrote back to him, but don't miss those 
treasures of your life that are the dreams you never had, but are the riches that make your life worthwhile. And, you know, in my case, you know, I got back on the bike. I found out I could still be an athlete. I mean, from the day I got back on the bike when I was 50 to today, you know, I'm nearly 60 pounds lighter than when I was a uh, middle-aged lawyer in a major law firm in Washington, DC. I wasn't healthy, but today, the, the thing that all these experiences have added up to is maybe it's that my cucumbers are really doing well out in the garden. Uh, no, we don't have any races that we can compete in this year because of the, of the pandemic. But there are other challenges that you can embrace in your sport that give you that drive at six in the morning when you kiss your significant other on the cheek while still they stay asleep and you go to the pool or you get on the bike. And it's finding those other drives, but never forgetting that each day is so rich with things that, that we sometimes overlook and uh, keeping that perspective in mind. You may lose some athletic dreams, but my gosh, you're strong, you're fit, you're, you're athletic, you're capable. Those are things you never really prioritized as your dreams, but you're so rare to be able to have those as attributes of your life. And I think it's one of the things that's helping a lot of us get through this is realizing what we do have, not necessarily what that particular long-term dream uh, is that got shattered by the illness. Yes. Maria and I just had a conversation about this theme yesterday. Right now, we're all, we all want to get out of this moment. We're not in the, the present moment. We want the races to come back. We miss the swim meets. We miss the road races. We miss socializing with our friends. And yeah. it's so... Like, it's going to pass. You know, we're going to have, whenever this pandemic goes away and everything is back to normal, and it will go back to normal, we're going to look back. And I, Marie and I said, we we promise there are going to be times that we're going to look back in the future and say, you know, I miss that pandemic when I <laughs> used to grow cucumbers, when I had the time to learn to knit. Yeah. And Maria said when she she learned to bake sourdough bread or you get more time with your family. So I, I think, you know, that's a it's a great sentiment, Jeffrey. And it kind of just encompasses exactly what Maria and I said. Maybe we need to do an entire show on that topic because everybody wants out of now. They want to go, go get back. But there are many riches uh, right now. And we don't know how our lives, these this little turning point in our lives via the pandemic or anything else that happens is going to open up new vistas. As you know, you know, my sister got brain cancer and died. And that's what that's what made me an endurance cyclist. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I never dreamed of riding my bike 12 or 24 hours, but something happened and I had to do something different. And so and I'm, you know, that's part of who I am now. So it's yeah, that the I. I think we will look back on this time and, and we'll long for our beautiful cucumbers. <laughs> well, and it doesn't mean that I've given up cycling. I mean, uh, the good thing for me was to actually re-engage with my coach uh, in March. And I thought, well, you know, everything's shattering, but I can do this by myself. But what I missed was the process. Mm -hmm. I, I missed the discipline of having someone to, I was accountable by posting my rides every day. And uh, fortunate enough that I could, that he was available and I was able to fit into his portfolio again. And I have to say that, that, that 
structure and accountability has really helped me get through this middle because for the highly skilled athletes that you've had on this podcast that I've found inspiring, one of the things that keeps coming back to is it, just get in the pool and do it. Uh, just get out on the bike and do it. Uh, don't think, just do. And that mm-hmm. is that what, that's how we find happiness. That's how we mm-hmm. find joy. That's how we find the energy to confront the other challenges of life. Well, Jeffrey, you've been so successful in your profession, in cycling, in recovering. You've you've obviously touched on several characteristics that have made you successful from, you know, your your goal setting and your massive drive and your persistence. What other characteristics do you either have that we haven't talked about or ones that you think champions generally share? <laughs> I think the thing that we haven't talked about that is important uh, is your willingness to expose yourself to suffering. You know, there are exercises that and routines and interval sets that uh, any endurance athlete gets that there's no way to describe it. They just suck. Uh, you see them on your calendar and you think, oh, God, Thursday is going to be a nightmare. Your coach says, I want you to do a five-hour workout, and I want you to hold a certain speed or a certain power for five hours. Mm-hmm. And you think, this is going to be awful. Last year, before we started racing for nationals, I was out in Louisville and had the good fortune to visit the uh, Muhammad Ali Center. I'd always admired Ali, uh, but there was a quote of his on the wall that just just seared itself onto my brain and my heart. And what he said was, I, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Yeah. Right. My knees almost buckled. <laughs> and as we left the, the, the center, I noticed on the counter, they were selling necklaces. And on the necklace is a, uh, a red bicycle. Well, this is a, a, a emblem of Ali because when he was 12 years old, someone stole his bicycle. And he was told the officer about it and said, I was going to go whoop that guy's butt. And the officer said, you know, do you know how to fight? And Ali said, no, come to the gym tomorrow. If you're going to whoop his butt, you might as well do it the right way. <laughs> and so that red bike that he lost at age 12 was the one thing that drove him to become world champion. And so at the national championships and also at the world's tucked beneath my Jersey was that necklace. And it was my reminder that no matter what I was feeling at that moment in the race, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours in the desert heat, if I kept suffering and worked through it and ignored it, and found more strength in my heart to just keep going than whatever they said on the podium, I knew that for myself. Oh, gosh. Uh, I love that. I, I had never heard the Ali story and the willingness to expose yourself to suffering. I love that. And Maria, this is conversations with champion and champions and you too, Maria. I think I think you endurance cyclist, um, you guys are just in a different league. Uh, you know, I've suffered on endurance, but not to the level of six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. Maria, could you 
just, you know, meld your voice with Jeffrey's and tell us how you suffer because you, you're, that's, that's, you say that's your superpower, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think Jeffrey touched on it and I sort of emphasized it earlier. It's hard to do this for, for me, it was hard to do this for personal glory. I mean, I love personal glory. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But, but in the, in the worst of it, you know, just for your, just for a, a title or a, you know, a place on the podium, you you just wouldn't do it. It just hurts too much. But for others, you know, it's, it's helpful, you know, so whenever I am really, really uncomfortable, I, my suffering is always offered. This is a very Catholic expression, but it's uh, offered for those who are suffering and don't have anybody to stand beside them. So, so when I'm, so when I'm out there and it hurts like anything and all I can think of is I want to quit, I think, no, I'm not going to quit because I'm doing this for someone else. So that's one section for me. And the other part is this is sort of a little known thing about me. I use rage (laughs) and I, I am so angry that people are dying from brain cancer or other cancers. Um, I am so angry that the rage, I channel that rage. And um, so when I'm, when I'm out there and something hurts and I'm like, Jeffrey, I'm doing some, you know, really tough workout. um, I remind myself that every pedal stroke, every pain that I experience in my legs, my lungs, in my head, wherever it is, is, is going out there to grind up, to cure brain cancer, to grind up cancer cells to, you know, I literally use that, you know, and I think that you can channel rage, I would call it righteous rage, but I've used unrighteous rage before. In fact, some of my best rides are when I'm mad at Jim. Those are those one hour rides that really... <laughs> So, you know, anyway, Jeffrey, would you, would you agree with that or add to that? Well, I was going to say, um, you've seen me, I, I somehow along this process, actually, my wife got a tattoo with a friend of hers and I said, Hey, she was like 55. And I said, she can't be the only one in this family with a tattoo. I mean, I needed to get some. And one of the ones that I have is around my left bicep and it's a bicycle chain link you know, links of chain. Normally you'll see the manufacturer's name on those links, but on mine, on each link is the name of one person who has been behind me in my cycling journey. Mm. My mother, my wife, my children, my coach. And uh, I just saw him at lunch and I said, Ben, don't ever forget that your name is here right in my armpit. And every time I raise, I'm taking it. I love it. Uh, may, maybe uh, you need a link for cruise bike on there. Yeah, yeah. The logo definitely is going to get on that on the right right calf. Yeah, all right, oh, I, love that's cool. I love it. I love that's it. I love it. That's cool. One of the people whose name there was a fellow that uh, had inspired me to start back when I was fifty. Uh, and his name's Craig Clark, and Craig was an amazing cyclist. He was also a doctor of some renowned, and he was racing for the Mid-Atlantic Championship road race, uh, came around the final turn. Something observers saw was wrong with his front wheel. He missed the turn, went head first at full speed into a light post and suffered traumatic brain injury. And while he lived on, he was never able to do, to ride a bike again. And 
uh, you know, I see Craig, you know, and talk to him on a regular basis, but uh, yeah, his name is one of those. And mm -hmm. tomorrow for the first time, I'll be seeing him and showing him my world jersey <laughs> that he inspired. And so that those, those people, as you can tell, you know, they mean a lot. And all you have to do is think about them. But the other part of it is uh, some words that were shared with me in the pit about 11 hours into a race where we were talking about, you know, whether we stop again or something. And uh, it happened to be Jim Parker who looked at me and said, <laughs> you're a 12 hour racer, right? I said, yeah. So gut it out. <laughs> he, of course, he was sitting in the pit. So, <laughs> But, you know, it comes back to just having that you can have all the sources of inspiration that you can cite, cite, but ultimately you have to reach into your your heart and into your spirit and say, I am going to conquer this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing I take back from cycling is there's nothing in my life now that ever really seems insurmountable. It's most, it's just another mountain. And if I show the, the tenacity and, and the will, I'm going to I'm going to get to the top of there and stand there just as I did at the top of Col de Calibier and so many other mountains and say I beat you and I am the champion today. Awesome, Jeffrey, we're you know, we try to keep our podcast to under an hour. We're getting close to that and uh, our last question that we love to ask people is uh is there anything you'd like to share that uh we haven't asked you? Embrace the day. I mean, I think that you know, whether you're on a bicycle or you get a chance to be in the pool or you just go for a walk at the end of the day, look back on the treasures that that day has given you and know that you have won so many things that day that did not exist when you first opened your eyes in the morning. Um, I think it's just really vital that as much as we as competitive athletes pursue the dream of having the top step on the podium and having the, the brightest metal around our neck, uh, it's really important to also keep that in perspective. Uh, that you know, We are so fortunate to be alive and to be healthy and to be able to have the strength to navigate the setbacks and the bridges that you fall off of. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, it's, you know, keep that perspective. Beautiful. Well, I, I, I am going to embrace the day and the time that we've gotten to spend with you. It's been just very, very inspiring. And um, well, thank you. Yeah, I, so I've been so enjoyed your so enjoyed the podcast series, and uh, it was actually delightful that we could work this out that I could contribute as well. Yeah, I can't Jeffrey. wait for our listeners to hear it. Yeah, I can't either. I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us and share your very unique and and in a beautifully articulated perspective. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. All right. All right. So take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Takeaways, takeaways, takeaways. We've heard from you that your favorite section of our podcast is the takeaways. Thank you so much for that feedback. But before we get to the takeaways today, we wanted to ask you if you would please give us a five-star review. That way, more people will be able to find our podcast also, if you could subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, you'll never miss a podcast episode if you subscribe. And please share our podcast with your friends. And now, the takeaways. Well, Maria, oh gosh, I 
you know, it's uh, our first cyclist, right? A pure cyclist that we've had other than you. And uh, what what an yeah. inspiring story. I mean, I was just choked up a couple of times and, and a great, just an inspiration. So many takeaways, you know, just just lots to take away there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Jeffrey's my friend and I've heard, never heard him tell the story particularly this way, but he's... You know, I since I've known him for quite a while, I've understood, you know, I know his, his background, but, you know, it, it, it's just, he's just a beautiful person. And I think, you know, it's, it's nice to have, you know, whenever we have an older guest on, I'm always uh, glad because the perspective is completely different. I love the freshness of the younger athletes, but it's, it's really interesting to hear, you know, somebody who's been around the block a time or two. Yes, yes. And I, I'm going to start with my first takeaway, and it wasn't even discussed, but that's one of the things that I, I kind of alluded to in the podcast, that we we like to see see things in these champions that they may not even, that they're just doing automatically that we can have a, a lesson from. And my first takeaway is just the incredible passion that Jeffrey mm. has for life, you know, just yes. for... for for cycling, for growing his cucumbers to his profession. <laughs> and that, that it was contagious for me. Like I, this is, and when you mentioned that the, this is an older athlete and I, and that says it even more that, that you know, it's right. easy to be passionate about your sport when you're a 21 year old Olympian. I mean, you know, that's a good point. Can, that's a good point. Can you, yeah, he has a youthful passion, doesn't he? Oh my gosh. He's kept this passion for decades and it's still right. it's still as palpable and and strong as ever so i just i my first takeaway is that passion and and he wears it on his sleeve you know he's he's so passionate about what's happened in his life and where he's going and what he's doing that he's emotional and i love that mm -hmm. so i mm -hmm. i just think that passion is a trait of people who are successful and you got to have passion towards it gets you up in the morning it, it gets you through hard workouts it it just it's it's huge and he's got it big time so that was my first yeah. takeaway yeah that's really beautiful it's true his passion is just barely below you know his skin level you know he just it comes out uh that's 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 really an excellent point kelly that and i think that it is true that to have success you know you you've got to feel that um okay so well you know jeffrey is a fellow endurance cyclist so he's used a lot of the same tools and tricks that i have but one of the things that he said that i always just go aha 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 was basically that when you know when it's hard to see the big goal because of discomfort or suffering or um or something's been moved for instance you know during the pandemic and or, or whatever, that you need to focus on small goals. And I truly, truly live this every day and believe this, that especially when times are tough, you just look and take the next right step and you do the next right thing and you, you get on the bike today. You lace up your shoes today. You go to the workout room today or you, you know, you put down the glass of wine today, you do one right thing, the next right thing. And, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's no question that you have to have big goals 
and that big goals are inspiring, but big goals can seem very far away. And, you know, and if you can just work that process and try to do the right thing today, then you're going to succeed. So I was glad that he mentioned that. That, that is, you know, that is a trait of champions that, that we keep seeing. And I don't think you can ever remind yourself enough about the biggest, uh, you know, the longest journey starts with one step. You can eat a whole elephant one bite at a time, just small goals. I love it. Yeah, it's it sounds so, you know, overused, but people forget that it's really what I do to, it's, it's what I do right now after we get off this podcast or doing this podcast. It's what, you know, it's, it's the next thing that you're doing that's building your, your, your tomorrow and your success next week, next month, next year. So yes, Maria, that those are our great uh, first takeaways. My second one, and I, I wanted to address the very, not anything new, but certainly a little different twist on the willingness to expose yourself to suffering. So this is an interesting one, which I think is a trait that champions share. And and I, I, I wanted to touch on this one because I think it's okay and that you can still be a champion without the willingness to suffer, but maybe not in endurance athletics. So that's where... I bring in your husband, who was um, talking, uh, told Jeffrey in the pits, just gut it out. And, and, and you know, and, <laughs> and your hilarious. husband has done a lot, but I want to bring in my husband. Oh, sure. He, yeah. he knows how to suffer. He knows Absolutely. how to suffer. Um, but my husband is not willing to suffer. He just, it's a, it's an interesting Thing. He's a great athlete, um, but longer endurance events are just, they're just not for everyone. And yet, if, if you're going to do endurance, yes, you need to suffer. But I don't think that all athletes need to suffer. What do you think of that? I completely agree. I think, you know, I, and I think that those of us, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone. I'll speak for myself. I think that uh, I, am good at endurance events because I have this willingness to be uncomfortable for long periods of time. I'm not sure I would be able to be successful <laughs> outside of that. I mean, so that's a gift, just like, you know, a slow twitch, fast twitch, uh, you know, Jim, who, who can do endurance events and does well at them is so much better at a sprint than I am. You know, we talk about it all the time. He just like he just doesn't even feel the discomfort till later. You know, and I, you know, I just I I try to recruit those big muscles, and you know, and I just giggle because they're you know they're just not there. So I agree with you that you can absolutely be a champion without that suffer gene, but you have to be willing to, you know, to be disciplined, which is probably different. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought I, th I just wanted to touch yeah. on that as a yeah. thing. So what was your yeah. second takeaway? Oh, the second one, I, you know, Jeffrey is so positive and optimistic and, uh, you know, and has carried that through, you know, his trials, his you know, broken neck through, you know, he mentioned that he's been fired. Uh, I'm sure he's had way more challenges than I even have heard about or know about, but his optimism, you know, I will ride again. I will, you know, I will do this. I will, 
I'm just going to keep on on going. His and it's just his optimism in life. He's he. I've never heard him be pessimistic. He has told me stories about being depressed and being sad, but I think those were just the things that he did before he got busy. Right. <laughs> you know, changing things for himself. So um, I, I think an optimism is something, it's kind of like competitiveness. I think a lot of people would say, well, you're either optimistic or you're not when you're born. But I truly believe that you can become more optimistic if you work on it. You know, if you work on on gratitude and seeing, you know, the positive and things. And I, and it, you know, we, we know the studies are there. You live longer, you're, you're sharper, you know, you're you can learn better. You're, you're just better at everything if you can be optimistic. And again, Jeffrey has that quality, you know, in bucketfuls. Yes. I, I think that was, that's a huge part of his success. He's just, yeah. he just sees the glasses half, half full. And, um, right. And that's a trait that, yeah, is, is important. And I think it's a trait we, we can acquire, you know, just flip it around. When you start to think of something in a negative light, just reframe it. So I, yeah. I love that. Love yeah. that. Well, Maria, what a what an inspiration! What a great show! And uh, we'd we'd love to hear from our listeners about uh, what they thought of that show because it's it was just unusual. It was and... a little bit of a yeah different for us. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it'd be interesting to get some feedback on whether listeners like that kind of thing. Yeah, easy to email us at, at hello at championsmojo.com. Okay, Kelly, I love you. Have a great day. Love you too, Maria. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye-bye. This week's quote of the week comes from Muhammad Ali. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. You've been listening to the Champions Mojo podcast with host Kelly Palace and Maria Parker. Champions Mojo is produced by Cobra Media and a new episode debuts every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Follow Champions Mojo on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Champions Mojo.